the Football with Grant Wall. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Jordan Angeli, who co-hosts the MLS Assist podcast and the U.S. Soccer podcast and is the local TV analyst for the Columbus Crew. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Stefano Fusaro, and Jeremy Ibobasi, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for our growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Jordan Angeli on here soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer weekend with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Miked Up podcast, which you should definitely check out. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Would Jeremy Bobasi fall under the category of the football with Grant Wall curse, or does he benefit <laughs> from getting to the semifinal? Because early in that Portland Timbers match, he missed a sitter. I'm like, no, I hope this doesn't become a problem with football with Grant Wall guests. <laughs> I'm still, like, he's headed to the semis of the MLS's <laughs> back tournament. Actually would have had a goal in this if Sean Johnson hadn't made a really impressive double save on him. Right. Uh, later in the game, but he's still got three goals in the tournament, going to potentially add to that, and uh, I think Portland could win this thing, though I could say that about any of the four teams left. We'll get to uh, talking about the MLS tournament soon here, but I want to start in England with the FA Cup final. Arsenal 2, Chelsea 1, Arsenal wins its 14th FA Cup, and Christian Pulisic, the American with... A tremendous goal in the fifth minute of this game that put Chelsea ahead. And it was kind of an aria of emotions for American soccer fans in this one. When you see an American like Pulisic really playing at the best level we've ever seen him play, having a big influence on a game at 21 years old, and comes out after halftime and does his hamstring. And this leaves in a tremendous amount of pain. Chelsea ends up losing the game and there's a lot to talk about here but this was the full Christian Pulisic experience. 100% and talking about the injuries is really an unavoidable part of talking about his career. To me the greatest credit to him is the degree to which the analysis seemed to be well the minute he left the game Chelsea's threat kind of left them and he is Chelsea's threat right now in the way that he picked up the ball for the first goal moving into that central position and then charging into the defense, sliding in Mason Mount and being there to profit off that second ball from Giroud, the composure of the finish, you get that full aspect of, okay, Christian Pulisic is a different dynamic post-restart, and he is so important to how Chelsea play. And I think there's a real correlation between how they played in the game and how well he was playing. So first 15 minutes, he comes out of the traps, he's brilliant, but then Arsenal start to figure it out and kind of take him out of the game, and that's when Chelsea start to fade from the game for the majority of that first half. And then start of the second half, it looked like Chelsea were kind of right back in it because he was right back in it, and then, as you said, does his hamstring. It is a real concern now going forward because he picked up a little bit of a knock that forced him to miss the FA Cup semifinal. He had the injury in December that looked like it was going to be a few weeks and then it turned into a few months. Then he's had other spells with injury during his Chelsea season. He's had spells with injury during Borussia Dortmund. And now there's a real concern. What is the long-term injury status of this player? Yeah, I'm not a doctor, but this one seems like it's going to be really hard for him to be available for that Bayern Munich round of 16 game. I think, based on what we know about hamstrings, that 
kind of you just hope he's available for the start of next season, which isn't that far away. There's not going to be a very long preseason. Uh, I thought there was an interesting tweet from Pierre Barriou, who you should follow on Twitter if you don't. He was the fitness guy for the U.S. men's national team for a really long time, early 2000s, all the way through 2010 and a little bit beyond. And he tweeted, there comes the re-warm-up post-halftime debate again. I do think that some action right off the locker room can always help. So what he's saying is this injury for Pulisic happened right after they started the second half. And this was a, a long run where he put some space on the, his defender. And then right as he approached the box, you could see him scream out and something seized. And then he somehow got the shot off, like, which is And like it wasn't crazy. a bad one either, yeah. And it was a visceral thing to watch as, a, as somebody watching the game to see that and then see him being taken off the field in, in so much pain afterward. I just thought that was interesting what Pierre Burry said. And I think there's a lot of things that can be posited about, you know, what happens now, whether it's when Pulisic does have an injury, you keep him out for longer or kind of rotate him more regularly. I thought this is probably the best case scenario in terms of entering a game that he's had post restart in terms of he's had a week off in between the Wolves match and this one. He was able to get that kind of full week to prepare. And so I just don't think you could have really classified this player as in the red zone, having had a full week off. Whereas there were moments up until that FA Cup semifinal when he didn't play where I was watching Chelsea every game thinking, all right, at some point, love Christian Pulisic succeeding at this level, but you have to get him a rest or bring him off the bench or take him off after an hour because he was playing 90 minutes, 90 minutes, 90 minutes. Chelsea needed him. And so... There's a lot of different ways that you can approach this, but to me, one of the hardest things about dealing with injuries is there's just really no way to isolate. Well, this is the reason why this happened. Is the player more prone to it? Are there things that he can be doing individually, that the trainer can be doing, that the club can be doing to manage minutes? Because ultimately, this is more art than science. We just don't know what is the exact thing that leads to injuries. And ultimately, if you can really tag a player with injury prone or really this sport that has a 12 month a year cycle of playing games as being too much for players because there's some players who can handle it actually ironically enough another Chelsea player was probably was going to be my example of someone who just never gets hurt Cesar Espeliqueta never yeah. gets hurt and then all of a sudden did his hamstring in the second half of the game as well so there are some players who can and some who struggle with it but I just don't know how much to lay at the feet of Christian Pulisic because what is the reason why these injuries keep happening we don't know no it's true and and there's concern about just over the next several months, even the next couple of years, just how busy the schedule is going to be, whether it's club, national team, all those things. And I do think it's going to be on Chelsea to manage Pulisic's minutes a little bit. I think it's going to be on Greg Berhalter and his staff with the U.S. national team to manage how they want to use Christian Pulisic and maybe whether it's him or Tyler Adams or, or other guys in Europe, maybe some of these things like Nations League, you don't necessarily need to bring them in. But, and, and I agree, like there are just some competitions, some pitches you have to let go. But uh, at the same time, I can understand from Greg Berhalter's point of view, from the moment he's taken over as national team manager and we're into year two now, he hasn't really had 
the full complement of the best U.S. national team players together to really work with him. The closest he came was the Gold Cup, and I thought that they built really well throughout the Gold Cup, their style of play and how they wanted to be as a team. But with Gio Reyna coming through now, with Josh Sargent developing in Germany and some other different pieces, Serginho Des becoming full national team, it's a very young group. That needs to kind of be molded together with the national team. And the Nations League does serve as kind of a lower stakes way to do that. But at the same time, I think given that ultimately the goal is qualifying for the World Cup and then doing well once there, you do have to take a longer term view of, all right, don't get on the plane halfway across the world so we can play X team. Let's wait for the next one, a World Cup qualifier that really matters and try and manage the situation as best we can because ultimately it's going to be impossible for Christian Pulisic to play a full complement of Premier League, FA Cup, Champions League, Nations League, World Cup qualifiers, and any international friendlies they might have as well to boot. So I think it's probably more on the national team than it is on the club because the club is obviously going to try and throw Pulisic into everything because of how well he's played. The national team is probably going to have to say, sit this one out. This is where I get snarky and say, if U.S. soccer had hired Greg Berhalter a year earlier, like they could have, (laughs) maybe he would have had more time with his guys. I would also say, and and I don't want to make this just about injuries and load management and stuff, that goal was Pulisic at his best and showing why you should be so excited about him. Here's a guy who can drift in from the wing and be deadly from either area on the field, but you know he gets it in a central position, beautiful turn, instantly moves forward, delivers the pass left to, to Mason Mount, not an easy pass to deliver, and continues his run, by the way. Yeah. And then Mount centers, Drew gets it, Really good chemistry between Giroud and Pulisic. And then at speed, having continued his run into the box, just great balance from Pulisic, tight space, ton of poise in the box, which reminded me a little bit of that goal against Liverpool where things just seemed to sort of slow down for him. Great on both feet, finishes. I it, It's all there. And, and you see that and you, you see the goal in the Liverpool game and the assist in the Liverpool game. And you're just like, I know I'm American. I think he's one of the best players in the world when he does that. I really do. And it just doesn't seem like that novelty is ever going to wear off. I mean, this is an FA Cup final. Like this is one of the big occasions in English football every year. And Pulisic just steps up to the occasion and... As you said, all of his attributes are kind of highlighted in that move. To me, one of the most impressive things that we've seen from him, because I think early part of the season, it was a bit too easy to take the ball off him. He didn't really play with intent or confidence in the way that we see in that move, but incredible turning ability. Receives the ball with his kind of back towards goal. Jorginho kind of sees, hey, all right, you're in the middle take the ball and turn into space and do something with it. The intent, as you say, to play that ball to Mason Mount, he makes a quick decision and carries on his run. So it's that kind of intent with confidence and ability to carry the ball forward at speed while maintaining possession of it. And then that composure in front of goal. Martinez has been excellent in goal for Arsenal. And that is not an easy finish because it's very close to him. He knows he's probably got to get some loft on or else you're hitting it right into him. And It's just, my God, an American has scored in an FA Cup final for Chelsea. And the only lament from an American point of view is that it doesn't lead to a win because 
while I, I was listening to some talk sport this morning and listening to how the conversation is, wow, what a player. I heard uh, Harry Redknapp was on at a guest. Like, he was talking about Chelsea and like stopped his train of thought and be like, that Pulisic, that, they can't stop saying Pulisic for whatever reason. <laughs> that Pulisic is some player. Like, I can't wait to watch him going forward because what a threat he is. Like, he is drawing headlines and it only would have been even bigger had they won. We should talk about Arsenal here. They did win the game. They did win the uh, the trophy. <laughs> And Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, both goals, drew the penalty. Terrific move in the box for the the game winner. Might be headed out, might not. If you're an Arsenal fan, and there are a lot of Arsenal fans here in the United States, this was a game where a lot of the things that you usually see happen badly to Arsenal happen to the other team. For sure. And this is where I think the change in manager is what makes this look different. Because Arteta has come in, and you would think, right, Pep Guardiola disciple played for Arsenal under Wenger and would want to play a certain way. But he's come in and, while has occasionally gotten Arsenal playing some free-flowing, attacking stuff, and they've looked good in some moments. It's more about the way that they've managed to negate their opposition in the FA Cup semifinal and in the final. And the semifinal was holding Manchester City to very few clear goal-scoring opportunities. And in this final... After that first 15 minutes when it was pretty clear Frank Lampard had some ideas about how he wanted to attack Arsenal defense that worked early, he adjusted and made it really difficult for Chelsea to play out. And the excitement that you're talking about from Arsenal fans is as a tactician, someone who's come in and given them some sense of solidity where... Once they went 2-1 up, Chelsea didn't really have that many opportunities. It didn't feel like nervy Arsenal holding on to a lead. It felt like confident Arsenal seeing out a victory. And that's such a huge difference from what we've seen from Arsenal in the last decade, really, that I can understand that sense of encouragement. The doubts are with Aubameyang. He's such a key player, and he had such incredible skill moves. He's got a year left on his contract, and it's going to be really expensive to keep a 32-year-old player. That's a real question. And then... Can they do enough strengthening of the defense? We talk, we, David Luiz is always brought up in, the, in this conversation. Can you find center backs that are better? It feels like at, with Bellerin and with Kieran Tierney, they're good at fullback. In central midfield, they could probably use a bit more. They're good in goal, but the spine of that team needs something extra if they want to compete in the top four. So can they go out and spend money in a pandemic with the Cronkies as their owner? I just don't know. So you can be encouraged about some things, but there is always that flip side when it comes to Arsenal. How excited can you really get given their current situation? Yeah, I do want to see what they do in terms of Aubameyang because we're going to find out fairly quickly. I guess they could sell him to like, and and they would certainly find interest. I don't know for how much. It's kind of a weird one because he does affect games at a very high level, but he is in his 30s. So, you know, there's obviously no resale value there at all. There's only one year left on his deal. But I'll tell you what, if I'm Barcelona, I'd probably rather have him than Antoine Griezmann in that spot. There's a lot of clubs. I mean, Inter Milan are probably going to replace Alexis Sanchez, you would think. I mean, that's a massive upgrade. Imagine him playing you know, off of Lukaku. That's quite a combination when you look at them in their, in their 3-5-2 system under Conte. In theory, you'd think that any club would want him. If you're Spurs to play another wide man and someone who can, you know, come in if Harry Kane ever gets hurt. We talk all the time about how they never have someone who can cover for Harry Kane. If you're Man City, who are, you know, thinking about maybe a post-Sergio, well, it, this wouldn't really help a post-Sergio Aguero move, but a post-Leroy Sané move, have someone playing and available done that. Like any club can use Aubameyang, but you do have to consider that there is a report in the Daily Mail about how he nearly left for Chelsea in January, but it kind of 
stopped on the demand that Aubameyang be the most expensive in terms of salary player in Chelsea's history. That's crazy at 32 years of age. And so are you going to fork over, I just said, a transfer for a player that's older and pay him a bunch of money and probably can guarantee him years as well you just don't know where that club is, again, in this current economic climate. I recently got Josh Kroenke's cell number. I, I think it's a long shot, but <laughs> he wouldn't be a bad guy to get on the podcast and just say, come on, man, are you going to spend the money or not? <laughs> I mean, Arsenal, under the Kroenke's, they get criticized for that. And then, like, if there's a club that will use, not use, but will justify, hey, we want to operate on the basis of our revenues, and our revenues are going to go way down from not having crowds... I think they're going to be even more fiscally responsible, especially since they still have the Ozo contract on the books. They've got to pay him 350000 a week for one more year. <laughs> this reminds me, by the way, I did a tweet on this earlier this week. Have you noticed how many players on that 2014 German World Cup winning team have retired from the sport at a young age? I hadn't until you brought it up. I didn't, I didn't, it had passed me by that Andre Schurla had retired. but At 29! Yeah, yeah, so he, he recently weird. retired... At 29, uh, Benedict Cavadez just retired this week at 32. Per Mertesacker retired from the sport at 33. And Philip Lahm retired from the sport at 33. And I just find that fascinating. And I looked at some of the other World Cup teams from that 2014 World Cup, like the Netherlands got to the semifinal. And the youngest retirements for them were at 35 with Wesley Snyder and Robin Van Persie. And I do think 35 is more understandable like and, and, and you probably shouldn't call that early in in mm-hmm. this sport in the modern game especially when these guys start playing professionally at age like 16 and 17 yeah uh and just get run into the ground over the years but but i do think there's something very interesting with that german team one of the things that intrigues me is i was i've been studying kai havertz a lot because he might be going to chelsea he's already played like 150 pro games for Bayer Leverkusen. Right. And you, you look at when Wayne Rooney arrived at DC United, he had played like 650 games between Everton and Manchester United. When you factor in England, that's another 100. That just the sheer volume of games. And as you said, Germany in particular plays their teenagers early. Like they like that's why so many Americans want to see their young players go to Germany because you know they're going to play. I do wonder if maybe in the future, like Kai Havertz will have, you know, he's already played 150 games. He's 21 years old. If by the time he's 32, 33, he's like, all right, I've had enough of this. I mean, also too, I couldn't believe this. Mario Goetze just turned 28. Oh my God. Seriously? I thought it was like a misprint, but it wasn't. So he was was 22 when he scored the winning goal in that final. Yeah. Oh my God. But think about it. He's just, he just turned 28. And if you had asked me before I looked it up how old Mario Goetze was, I would have said like 31, 32. He feels older than that. <laughs> and it's just wild to me. And, and like I cover this sport for a living. So like I'm not naive about ages and like, yes, goalkeepers can play you know, to an older age because of wear and tear. And so you see guys closer to 40. But it also puts in perspective, Lionel Messi just turned 33. And he went to Barcelona at age 13. It's sort of miraculous that he's still playing at the level he's playing at at age 33. And it also makes me wonder how much longer he can do that. It also makes me respect Cristiano Ronaldo, who, yes, is a fitness demon, but he's 35. Yeah. And... Once you get into your 30s at in this sport, I think 
we've seen it's really hard to stay at the very highest levels, and that's why Messi and Ronaldo even more than I thought, are freaks of nature. Cristiano Ronaldo, I, I just did some quick math here while we're talking. So he has played 149, this is according to Transfermark, and sometimes they miss a few games, but are mostly right. 849 club games between Real Madrid, Manchester United, Juventus, and Sporting, and 164 national team games. That's over 1,000 professional games between club and national team. Never mind like youth national team appearances and, and maybe other responsibilities, but... I feel like other people need to be asked, what's Cristiano Ronaldo doing? Because, I mean, obviously, doesn't probably doesn't put a bad calorie in his body or a drop of alcohol or, you know, doesn't miss a crunch every every day. But, I mean, still, it is remarkable the, the level that these guys perform at. But that really judges them more, as you said, as the anomaly rather than the rule. Because for other people, this load, this, you know, 55, 60 games a year just gets to be too much. Yeah. And also, too, with this German national team World Cup winners retiring early thing, I do wonder what the mental aspect is of reaching your career pinnacle, winning a World Cup. A lot of these guys have won Champions Leagues, too. Do you kind of feel like, I did it. My work is done. And, you know, I would would love to interview Andre Schurler right now. And I know he's had some injuries, but that's not why he's retiring. No. And you you, you bring that up, and it's a great point because— you look at the performance of World Cup winners in their next World Cup, and it's pretty well a disaster. So you look at Germany 2014 goes out in the group in 2018. Then you have in 2010, Spain goes out in the group in 2014. I mean, you go further and further back, and there are some pretty notable examples of World Cup winners doing bad at their next World Cup. And it's probably just like, we did this already. Like, this is, as you said, the most we can ever achieve in the game. As much as the club game has kind of taken over the world game, that World Cup is still unassailable as the number one achievement for a world footballer to win and maybe it is maybe you know the French national teamers in six years time we're looking at them going well what happened to them there's there, there are too many good young players but it wouldn't be that surprising to me as a matter of fact I'm gonna know I'm gonna write this down so I can pick it in 2022 like France out in the group stage like just because it seems to just be a trend that's difficult to to buck I, I think now it's four of the last five men's world cup winners have gone out in the group stage of the subsequent world cup that's crazy and, yes. and so that'd be a good magazine story previewing the next world cup so yes file that away <laughs> you shouldn't have said i'm gonna edit it out of the pod so <laughs> no one takes their idea <laughs> so let's talk about the mls's back tournament which I've really enjoyed getting into the rhythm of watching these games. We're recording this on Sunday. I'm already feeling a little bit of withdrawal knowing that it won't be on tonight. But we've got our semifinals, sort of unexpected in many ways. We've got Philadelphia, Portland in one semi, Minnesota, Orlando in a very intriguing other semi with some storylines that are are pretty great. And in the quarterfinals, for me... What stood out the most was the Orlando LAFC game, which really ratcheted up the drama as that game went along. LAFC clearly not playing at its best, but still had a 1-0 lead late, gives up a goal on a set piece, and Bob Bradley like basically as close to his head literally exploding on the screen <laughs> after they lose on penalties, sort of muttering stuff to himself about another LAFC earlier than expected exit from a knockout tournament. There was a lot happening here. And it's not just, by the way, the MLS Cup playoffs where they've gone out. They've also had some pretty bad performances in U.S. Open Cups as well, and they've given it a go. It's not like they don't take that competition seriously, but 
it's not just about the result, although the result obviously is just another knockout competition where they go out. It's more about the manner of performance, and that's, I think, what Bob Bradley would be frustrated by is that it just seems like once a knockout tournament, they can't deliver at their highest level. And one of the things that was kind of amazing is that they didn't deliver at, like, they didn't have a shot at halftime, which uh, which is the first time that happened to them uh, since they became an MLS club. But they get the lead, right? They are 1-0 up, and Diego Rossi had a great chance as well to make it 2-0, and he, his, his effort was saved by Pedro Galese. But when they get into these knockout tournaments, there's that one game where they don't perform and they can't grind out the result. And they were almost there. I thought Orlando would have been really hard done by if they didn't get at least to penalties given how well they played on the night. But this is one of those things that makes leagues more interesting. And I heard a really good conversation on uh, Paul Tenorio and Sam Stagecoe's podcast, Allocation Disorder, about how the stories of the league are not well told, right? That narratives don't develop and that there isn't really much carryover season over season. And well, this is what X team has on the line. LAFC and knockout competitions now has to become a thing. And I feel bad for Bob Bradley and for that team because they're so good. But this has to be a thing now. This, like Every time LAFC enter the playoffs, it's can LAFC deliver in the playoffs for three straight or four straight rounds, whatever the case may be. This is now probably MLS's biggest on-field narrative of their best team unable to deliver in playoffs. That's like a classically first-take kind of debate, right? Like a very ESPN-y, perfect-for-content Let's debate. Are LAFC chokers in the playoffs? <laughs> they did get by one bogeyman situation when they started beating LA Galaxy. Yeah. So they've had a few narratives like this. Yeah. And we'll see if they can get past this knockout tournament issue because it is something that's now extending over seasons. And look, they played some great soccer in this tournament. You know, I thought their performance against Seattle in the round of 16 was absolutely fantastic. Granted, they haven't had Carlos Vela, but I still have been saying, I think we said throughout this tournament, that even without him, they were the best team in the tournament. And and now they're out. They go out to an Orlando team that is so much better under Oscar Pereja. Oh, my God. And shows how much a new mentality can change a team in a very short time without actually bringing in many new players. Oscar Pereja is the best floor raiser, maybe alongside Bruce Arena, in the history of the league because he's come into an Orlando team. And the story of this tournament is that even though it's kind of its own different format, three of the four teams remaining have basically no history of winning. Orlando has never made the playoffs. Minnesota just got to their, I mean, albeit they've been, they've only been around for a few years, but just got to their first playoffs and lost in the first round to the Galaxy. Philadelphia, despite being around for a decade, has only just won their first playoff game last year against the Red Bulls, and Portland has won MLS Cup, so they've got some, some, some tradition and some history. But these new teams, Orlando is, you know, the biggest example among them. You mentioned without bringing, they've brought in some kind of mid-level signings like Antonio Carlos, like Sebastian Mendez, like Mauricio Pereira. But for the most part, it's a lot of the same team as a year ago. And their defensive solidity has basically negated LAFC for large stretches of that game. But he just knows how to manage in this league. He knows how to raise the floor. He gets his players on side and believing in what they're doing. And I just think Orlando now, especially given how well they played in the group stage, are probably going to make the MLS postseason once the season does actually resume. And 
I wouldn't want to play them in a knockout situation. They've got a real formula for how to compete at the highest level in these sorts of situations. And now heading into a game against Minnesota, they have as good a chance as anybody to make the final, which is ridiculous. Yeah, pretty incredible. And and there's so many great storylines in this Minnesota-Orlando semifinal. Minnesota obviously coached by Adrian Heath, who used to be with Orlando. He actually coached that team at the Wide World of Sports venue when they were pre-MLS days. So much history there. And, you know, a guy like Kevin Molino, if he's going to be healthy for Minnesota, we'll see, but like played for Orlando back in the day. And and it, it's interesting because Pereja and, and Adrian Heath have taken very different approaches in terms of publicly how they talk about their teams because it's sort of this classic to the point of annoyance thing with, with Adrian Heath. <laughs> oh, nobody believed in us. Nobody man. believes in us. You know, and getting angry at what media people say, which, whatever. <laughs> but but Pereja saying, we don't even think about that stuff. We don't really care about it. We're just going out and trying to win and, and winning. That, to me, is interesting. I like the different approaches, whether it's just storylines or whether it's just, uh, tactical. Like, we've seen a lot more variety recently in tactical approaches in MLS, but... I mean, I certainly didn't predict Minnesota-Orlando as a semifinal in this tournament. And and the same could be said for Philly-Portland. You look at what Philadelphia is doing, and and crazily, we may not see Brendan Aronson much longer in MLS if if he moves during this transfer window, which sounds like a possibility. But here's a 19-year-old who is doing some really cool things from an attacking midfield position, and that turn and pass he had on their goal the other night was fantastic. Yeah, the, the first goal against Sporting Kansas City and that whole Philadelphia performance, the three goals that they scored were sensational. And this is not a club that's going to spend a lot of money. I think there's some frustrations amongst MLS and I think rightly that there's like half the league and most of them are the new owners that want to come in, spend big money, really invest in DPs and grow even the structure with which they can spend. And then there are clubs like Philadelphia that have thus far proven unwilling to spend. But you can still succeed even without spending money. And they've thrown a lot into their academy and bringing through youth players and bringing in a scouting structure from Europe that allows them to find players like Kai Wagner who's in the lower divisions in Germany and ends up becoming one of the best left backs in MLS because they're able to pick out certain players that can succeed at this level. So Philadelphia is really well run, but I think the biggest thing they can do is sell Brendan Aronson for $9 million to a Bundesliga club. And it's it's interesting because in theory the market value on on American players should be signed it should be rising even if it did rise it's still so much lower than what it costs to get a player from one of Europe's top five leagues if you're getting a player with Aronson's kind of pedigree who's playing at full senior level for multiple seasons and contributing towards goals and helping the team win to get that description of a player from Belgium France Holland Germany that's fifty million right. Like what Aronson is doing in an equivalent league is a lot of money. But Americans, because of the nature of them being Americans, for now that's okay, can represent value. And this is where MLS has to step up and say, okay, while we want our standing as a league to be higher, we can potentially serve as a bargain basement for the rest of the world. So they want to come and grab American players because they're on the cheap. And then our standing of, oh, you can get a good player from America helps you grow and then all of a sudden you are on the level with other leagues so I'm really excited to see Brendan Aronson get sold I feel bad for the union fans but I want to see what that price is and what he ends up contributing in Europe because that's a huge step for Americans going forward I'm fascinated by what his price would be for 
for Gladbach or anyone else in Germany because I, I could see it being anywhere from four or five million to to fifteen. And, and then we, were, get, we were all shocked at Alfonso Davies's price, right? Because fifteen million for a Canadian player on Vancouver, like, what? Fifteen million in the European context—that's nothing. But still, to America, like, wow, they got that much for him, and with some hype, maybe Aronson can fetch even more. Well, I do wonder what the Alfonso Davies effect might be, if any, on German clubs now, maybe looking at MLS in a slightly different way when Davies. Shoots! I just saw someone put him on their uh, their best eleven in Europe for the season. <laughs> That's crazy for like half a season of playing left back. I mean, like we've talked about before. I mean, what? Who is a better left back in the world right now? I mean, I, 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 think I, it was I can't Guillaume think of Balague one of who did that. Um, yeah. So just very impressive. Uh, let's move on a little bit to a, a, a discussion point from some of these MLS games, which is something that I think is awesome, and I, I don't see how anyone could complain about this. They're showing. VAR real-time discussion between the referees on the field and in the VAR while they're deciding on penalties. And I think I'd seen this in Australia briefly. I'm told this happens in rugby and cricket. There's no reason it shouldn't happen everywhere in the world. And it always feels like, particularly in the big leagues, that they just don't want the scrutiny of that kind of decision being out there in public because if and when they get it wrong, because they will, they'll be like, wait a second. We thought that this high-minded debate it sounds like this, that this is I like, if like in England, for instance, they go to a, a VAR review for a penalty and all you hear the VAR guy say is, nah, not for me. And that's the extent to like, that's the rationale. It would be like, wait, like it, it, it shines an even greater light on the system not working. What I think has ended up happening here in the United States is we get a view of it last in in the um, I think it was in the NYCFC Portland match where a, where a penalty was awarded and it was a handball conversation and you just hear the referee kind of take all right natural position or, or or unnatural position his arm is out and you also hear the referee say play it for me at full speed because you want to see what that looks and so to just get that kind of dynamic. It ultimately leaves you less, even if you disagree with the decision, it leaves you less question because at least you understand the thought process. The one thing that I, the one criticism that I'd offer uh, is maybe don't speak in such esoteric language. Like it's very <laughs> like, oh, uh, <laughs> like, oh, natural position, unnatural. Like they don't talk like humans. They talk like officiating robots, like using very officiating e language. But other than that, you'd really leave the conversation feeling no shred of doubt about the conviction with which the decision was made. The indication on the broadcast was that Howard Webb, who runs Pro, had a big role in a negotiating process that is allowing these discussions in real time to be shown on TV. And I'll say, Howard Webb, thanks, man. This is awesome. We need this. We like this. It's like they're showing their work mm -hmm. in a way that is transparency regarding refereeing that we just don't get typically I like I, I told this story on Twitter before I still remember being next to Peter King in the press conference NFL Peter King at World Cup 2010 USA Slovenia right after Moedu's late winner was disallowed by Komen Koulibaly for oh, for no reason that any yeah. of us knew and we, Peter couldn't believe that we couldn't get a pool reporter in there to find out just why. I almost went to the airport in Johannesburg to stake out Komen Koulibaly 
<laughs> and and ambush the guy because that would have been a good story. In the hands of a different footballing nation, that sounds a bit more sinister. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to like harm I'm him. Him, but, I'm not, but like <laughs> to just get the information. Yeah. <laughs> I can't speak for U.S. fans. They may have like right. You know. yeah. um, but which reminds me, I've, I've had some fun stories over the years of covering like a World Cup qualifier in Panama or Costa Rica. There's a, a bad referee call. And we don't get any access, obviously, to finding out stuff. And then the next morning, you see the dude at the airport because he's flying home too. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, there is. There's some definite discomfort there with uh, <laughs> officials leaving stadiums, and I mean, we've seen all kinds of stuff happen uh, when it comes to that. But yeah, I mean, transparency always serves a positive function, right? Because ultimately, the vast majority of the times, the referees will look competent. And therefore, you will develop trust of them. And once you give this to fans, you just don't, you rarely see, like, for example, they did this in the XFL, the shortly lived XFL season that was somehow this year. They gave you the access, and very rarely did you feel at the end of it, oh, well, they really got that wrong. Like, you kind of understood the thought process that went behind it, and ultimately it leads to a sense of credibility with the referees that maybe you didn't have previously, where, I mean, MLS officials are, you know, criticized on social media all the time. Maybe they will be less so if you get a, a real window into their perspectives. Well, it is always a pleasure talking soccer with you, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. The MLS is back. Tournament continues. And while you can't cheer from your home stadium, you can win a stadium in a box thanks to Heineken 00. Share a photo or video of how you hashtag cheers from home on Twitter for a chance to win a package full of beer gear, stadium eats, and a real stadium seat. The MLS stadium experience delivered to your front door. There are 23 packages from 23 U.S. stadiums, but only one lucky winner per team. Must be 21 plus. To learn more and score some free Heineken 00, visit HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. That's HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. Heineken 00. Now you can. Now, here's my interview with Jordan Angeli. Our guest now is Jordan Angeli. She's a former NWSL and WPS pro who is everywhere these days in soccer media. Jordan co-hosts the MLS Assist podcast with Joe Lowry, breaking down MLS tactics, which you should definitely check out. She's the TV analyst for Columbus Crew Local Broadcasts. She co-hosts the U.S. Soccer podcast with Charlie Davies. She's the founder of the ACL Club and the Show Your Scars podcast. And she does a lot of work covering the NWSL. Jordan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. You tired from that bio? Man, got to take a deep breath before that one. <laughs> I know how tired I am reading that. I can only imagine how busy you are. Um, it seems like for the MLS Assist podcast, you've been recording after every match day with tactical breakdowns of every single game in the MLS's back tournament. How are you holding up? I'm all right. I'm better now that we're in the quarterfinals. More 8 p.m. games, less 10.30 p.m. games. But yeah, it was interesting. You know, we all were without sport for so long and the thought of it coming back. And then when it did come back, super excited about that. And then it was just from zero to 100, watching three games a day. And then from there, recording a podcast afterwards. So I wasn't going to bed till like 2, 3 a.m. And 
I kept reminding myself when I was on little sleep watching those 9 a.m. games um, after a late night. I was like, Jordan, this is just preparing you for a World Cup. Like, keep working. This is the kind of work that you have to do in this job. So I feel really grateful, to be honest. It's been really fun covering this tournament. Well, it is a lot like a World Cup, I would think. I remember back at World Cup 2018, I would sleep from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m., every night and I just got used to doing it and then getting up and doing it again and, and you're getting paid to watch soccer for a living so that's really nice right um but I'm also wondering like for the NWSL tournament were you watching all those games too I tried to watch as many as I could it got really tricky when we were in the heart of MLS is back tournament and the NWSL tournament was winding down. So I missed more of the knockout rounds for NWSL than I would have liked to. But uh, yeah, Jeff Kasuf of Equalizer Soccer, Lori Lindsay and I did a Facebook Live every, pretty much after every round, which was really fun. We did it in, um, in cohesion with NWSL and Equalizer Soccer. And it was it's just nice. I love that league. I love com- that I came from that league and get to talk about it because I think everybody gets got to see how incredible these women are and these athletes are. They're just, they're incredible. I, I don't know what, what else to use as a descriptor word of them. Really good momentum, I think, for the NWSL coming out of this tournament with the new LA expansion team being announced and good television ratings and, and all of that stuff. Um, I want to ask you about your MLS Assist podcast since you're putting out so much good stuff every day on that. Oh, thanks. I'm struck by how good you guys are at communicating the tactics of the game without having the ability to use visuals like Mm. someone would on TV or even in a written story. You can put in diagrams and stuff in videos. Like, How do you guys go about making that work knowing that you're just going to be able to communicate it by voice? I like that question because I think that is one of the most difficult parts of it. And I honestly learn a lot from Joe. I love the way he describes play. He is very detail oriented and it helps me. Like there's times where he's describing something and I have to do my like thinking look away where I'm trying to visualize it in my brain. And I can see the entire play build up just from what he's saying. And I think that's pretty incredible. I think my work as a radio Uh, analyst helps in this way because I did have to describe a little bit differently than I do now as a television analyst but it's difficult there's there's times where I feel like man I don't know if I did a good job with that but I think the more that you just pursue and the more details I take when I'm taking notes like I have this whole long document of MLS is back uh, notes that I've taken the more detailed I am in those notes the better I can help uh, describe those moments of cool tactical breakdowns to the people that are listening. Nice. Um, So which couple of teams in MLS do you think are the most interesting tactically right now to you? Good question, because I think there are a few. There's a lot of teams that are playing different than we've known them before. I 
am kind of really into Orlando right now. And I love this transformation where there's not a lot of players that have changed. They just have changed ment- the mentality of the squad. And it's cool to see because we've, we know Oscar Pereja, right? We know who he has been in MLS and how he's translated that to this Orlando squad is really cool. So I like what they're doing. And um, they have some really interesting pieces, including Juan. He's, I think he's such a fun outside back to watch. And then I got to say it, but I love the way the crew are playing. Uh, it's tough to watch us lose in that knockout round. Um, but when the crew are doing what they are built to do, it is beautiful. We, we scored a goal. Eunice Mokhtar scored a goal against Atlanta, and it was 19 pass sequence. It was like, this is what soccer is, right? This is why it's the beautiful game. And I just love uh, not only the attention to detail and how they defend and counter press, but how they use that to manipulate space on the field. It's fun for me to watch. Hey, imagine as you're watching these games and you're taking notes, this isn't some situation where you're just like having a beer and and watching your TV. Like... Is it an intense experience when you're doing this to prepare for a, a, like a detailed tactical discussion? Yeah, I think what's interesting about it is it can be really overwhelming because how are you going to break down a game differently than you did the day before? Because there are similar things that happen. And so I am watching with this eye of like, Jordan, what is sticking out to you today? Is it an individual matchup that you really liked or is it how the team's defending as a unit? Uh, is it the um, is it a team that we have seen before and kind of recognize a style of play for them and they switch it up from a four two three one to more of a high pressing four three three with throwing numbers forward? I don't know. I don't. I think I go into every game trying to be open minded and let letting the play dictate what I'm going to talk about. But it is. It is like. There are times where I'm like, Joe, I don't know. I'm watching this game. I watched one of the games and I'm going to need you to help me because I couldn't focus. Like I couldn't figure out what I wanted to talk about. I had too many thoughts going through my mind about trying to find the perfect thing. So it has been a learning curve, but it's been really enjoyable. And honestly, Joe is like so fun to work with. And I feel like we just continue to have a better banter with him being in Arizona and me in Columbus. Like we've never met in person and we are somehow making this work. And it's been really a good time. How did you guys get connected in the first place? We got connected through Bobby Warshaw. Uh, He, Joe and him had a conversation and Bobby was like, called me up and said, Jordan, Joe Lowry, Uh, from The Athletic. He had been writing some pieces for The Athletic. He wants to start this podcast on tactics, and I thought you were the perfect person. And so I was very honored that Bobby would think that way of me, and I felt very humbled by that. And I had just read a piece from Joe, actually, on The Athletic, and he was breaking down how Robin Fraser was playing how the Colorado Rapids team were playing under Robin Fraser. And I was like, whoa, this is good. Like, so then I went back and read all of his articles with The Athletic, and I was like, this guy is legit. And then just like a week later, Bobby called me, so I was like all in. And um, yeah, we kind of just hit the ground running and launched in January to uh, call two weekends of actual, like what we wanted to do, tactic breakdowns of MLS games, and then found a way to continue doing it through no games at all. And now here we are talking about games every day. (laughs) 
Well, as much as I've heard you guys together now, that'll be quite an episode if you guys were ever in the same place meeting each other for the first time. That's kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. I know. He's been great. He really is great. So you just joined this year Columbus Crew's TV broadcast team coming over from Colorado Rapids. How did that move come about? And what have you been doing for the crew given the sort of unusual season so far? The move came about because... Um, I'm so thankful for the Rapids and the, the, I got to work for my hometown team for four years. It was really fun. And I always knew that TV, I had worked in TV in college with college games and knew that there was going to be an opportunity to be an analyst in MLS as a female. I just felt like that was my next step. And for the Colorado Rapids, they have a great TV squad, right? They have Marcelo Balboa, who's been, you know, who's an absolute legend in the game. And I, I knew from my own point of view, like I was never going to be able to have that role with the Rapids. So I was open to moving. I kind of felt like it was, it was time to move on and make that next step and got connected with the Columbus crew. And it all happened really quickly within like a couple of weeks at the beginning of February. And I was, it was hard timing for me because I felt like I didn't want to leave the rapids in a place where, um, you know, I didn't want to leave them stranded in, in that role that I had, but um, they were super supportive of me taking the next step. And it's been really fun. I'm so, I just love it here. I love uh, the team. I really enjoyed learning more about how Caleb wants to coach and learning about the organization. I feel like we've got a lot of great things on the horizon, including I'm sure you've seen the renderings of Columbus Crew Stadium, and it's going to be so cool. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about that. But yeah, it, I think it's interesting moving right in the middle of a pandemic. I moved like two weeks before everything started. And so one of the things I wanted to make sure I was doing is like, continuing to show crew fans that I was here and um, I loved the game and I wanted to analyze the game. So I started a series called The Breakdown and I broke down as much as I could of those first couple of games we had before uh, the, the pandemic hit. And then I've been continuing it now during MLS's back tournament. And it's just a quick like uh, three to four minute video where I go into a specific play and really talk all the details that went right for a defensive movement or an offensive movement to be successful for the crew. So I've loved that. It's fun to, to break a, a little itsy bitsy play of a game down to that much detail. Well, we'll see here if MLS can get, get games going again and home markets. I know they're yeah. hoping to do that before too long. Um, I always try to get everyone's backstory who I interview okay. on the podcast. Uh, I know you're from Colorado. Um, what's your soccer story? I grew up loving the game and falling in love really and wanting to be a professional because of the 99ers. And um, I remember being at a regional tournament where I was watching the game on TV when they were playing in the 99 World Cup and decided like that's what I wanted to do. And that really drove me. Um, I didn't play at all on my youth team. I was like the fir the last player off the bench, the first back onto the bench. I um, But it was like something had lit inside of me and I was going to pursue that with all I am. And I found a way to make it to Santa Clara. I went to Santa Clara and um, had a great career there. Learned so much from Jerry Smith and Brandi Chastain, who would help out as much as she could when 
Um, she wasn't still playing because she played for a while still when I was there. Um, yeah, and just I think from there I had some some great moments and some really difficult moments. I the great moment I got to play on the under twenty national team and go and compete in Russia, a place where I never thought I would go, and I'm sure you felt that way too um, <laughs> before before the World Cup there. And learn from some really smart soccer minds who I still think are is my favorite team I've ever played with. Kelly O'Hara, Lauren Chaney, Tobin Heath, Carrie Dew, uh, Tina DiMartino, Nikki Krizik, Casey Nagara. Like these players were ridiculously good. And so that was a big, um, a big high, a big up in my career. And then I tore my ACL three times in five years. And would get back every time. And um, that was just a really challenging moment for me to feel like everything was taken away. And then I would get it back and it was taken away. And um, so that flame within me of like continuing to pursue playing soccer was still there. And I think that allowed me to watch the game in a different way and really review and analyze the game in order to help my team in whatever way I could, even if I wasn't playing a single minute. And so from there, those, the two first ones were within a year at Santa Clara. And so I actually took six years to graduate and then I got drafted into WPS and had a great rookie year in WPS uh, with the Boston Breakers under Tony DiCicco, some of my favorite, also favorite memories uh, as a player. And then 2011, I was with the national team. I was runner-up for rookie of the year, named to best 11 in WPS, and first game of our second season, my second season, I tore my ACL again. And um, didn't really know if I would ever get back from that. And I think that was the, the lowest time in my life, in my soccer career, but also in my like personal life. I, I just thought if I didn't have soccer, what else was this all for? It was really deep. It was dark. It wasn't good. But um, through some hope and faith in that I, I was more than just an athlete, I really started to embrace that side of me and uh, not only started to pursue something outside of the game as far as playing, uh, dipping into broadcasting, but also realizing that there was a purpose in all of this pain that I had. And so I started the ACL club and eventually got back to playing, but only for a couple of years before I retired in NWSL. But it's a wild journey, Grant, but I think we all have a cool story to tell. And for me, it led me to, I feel like, honestly, where I am meant to be. And even though I always wanted to play in a World Cup, the fact that I get to now cover the World Cup is, and I got to do that last year, it feels like I'm fulfilling that dream in the way that is like perfect for me. Thanks for sharing your story. Um, I guess I'm curious to know, like the decision to stop playing, to retire from playing and, and try media out, was that all sort of one thing or how did, how did that go? It was not one thing. So I had, after my third ACL tear, um, I, the league folded that year at the end of that year. So that was 2011, the league folded in December. So I had to have two surgeries. I had to get my bones grafted and then I had to get an ACL surgery. So that was about, that was May and October. So I was really out and I knew I would be out for a number of years if I was to even get back from that. So I gave myself some time to just heal and recover. And I'm so thankful for my family. 
um, taking me in at that time and really loving and supporting me through all that. Because without that, I don't think I ever would have been able to make the next that next step. And then when the time was right, I started to dabble in coaching and I helped out with one of my old coaches at the Colorado Rush. And that's when I started to realize like what I'm doing is not really, I didn't love the coaching, like X's and O's part of it, like setting up a training and that part. But I loved talking to a certain player and telling them how they could get better or mentoring them in that. And I felt like I was almost breaking down the game for individuals to understand. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll start to see if I can do some broadcasting because I've always loved performing and the camera and it kind of just felt like it was the, a good marriage of the two. And so I called a local network called CSPN. It was Colorado Sports Network. I don't, I don't really remember what it stood for. And I was like, hey, I saw you guys cover high school soccer games. Can I, I, I would like to start as an analyst. Like, is there any way that I can help you guys out? So I started as calling high school soccer games, which I saw your eyes get big because yes, it was something. Um, yeah, my path wasn't easy. I started there and then just hustled, like called every college coach I knew in the Colorado area and would do web streams for free. And then from there, one at a time, I just started figuring out a way to get in with networks and then in with the rapids. And now I'm here. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable how things have opened up. But I know from talking to you in the past, I mean, it's not like one straight line no. of more work, more work, more work. No, I think that's one of the most interesting things about being a freelancer is it is like if you don't have the hustle, you're not going to make it. If you don't have the I know I'm good enough for this, you're not going to make it. And fortunately for me, I have both of those. Those have been ingrained in me since I was that 13 year old who wanted to be a pro and was the farthest from it on my team. And so I think that for me, it always was worth the work that I had to put into it. And it still is like, I feel like I have so much to learn still. And I love that about this job that I can always continue to get better. And I want to get better. I want to learn. I want people to critique me. And so I understand these things that I do that maybe I don't recognize. And it's just fun. It gives me that closest feeling to playing than uh, that I can have uh, as far as the ability to get better. And so I really enjoy that about it. You know, a couple of things I think are interesting. You have a, a similar situation somewhat to Taylor Twelman, Stu Holden, Kyle Martino, uh, in that all of you had to cut your careers as players off early, earlier yeah. than you wanted to. Yeah. But you also have been able to move into media and despite what must be just an awful situation, having to cut short your playing career, get going in media after that. For me, I do still feel like uh, slighted in a way, you know, and I think that will never go away because I think soccer really meant a lot to me and probably to all those guys too. You know, you don't, no one ever wishes anybody to get injured and for that to be the reason that their careers get cut short. But in the reality of what I went through, yeah, it really was hard. 
but people go through harder things. And I felt like if I can use what I went through in order to propel me to what I'm going to do next, then that's a real opportunity. Uh, Not a lot of people have the experience that I had in playing with the teams that I had and going through what I went through. And so if I can use that um, as an athlete who played, a soccer player who played every position on the field, like you asked Jerry Smith what position Jordan Angeli played, and he said, what didn't she play? Like, I just was willing to do whatever it takes. And um, I think that that knowledge is really unique. And so I'm leveraging that in all that I can. And, um, you know, I'm so thankful for my career and what it was. But what it wasn't is okay. And I have learned to live with that and to use what I have enabled to in order to grow. I think the timing's also interesting. Just today we learned that Lewis Riddick is going to be one of the new analysts for Monday Night Football. And I see some similarities with you here. He was he was not the most famous player in the NFL during his playing days, but he worked his butt off, provides great insight, and basically forced them to give him their highest profile job on Monday yeah. Night Football. Um, is that, when you see that or when you see what you're experiencing is it possible to, even if you weren't a World Cup star as a player, just work, work, work and show that you can do this really well? Why not? I mean, for me, why not? I, I know that there are experiences that certain people will get to speak to that I will never get to speak to. I can't tell you what it feels like to play in a World Cup final. I will never be able to tell you that. But I think that I will be able to know that if I continue to learn, for me, this job is all about like what you're willing to put into it. And if you're a player and you want to get into it, well, it's not easy. It's not easy to transition from a player into a broadcaster as easy as it seems like it could be. So I think if you're willing to put in the work, I just don't think there's limits on who the person is that is telling us how a play is working or not working. Um, so I'm, I'm determined to continue to get better and just to see what this holds for me, because I really do feel like I'm doing something that I'm meant to be doing. So you just had Mia Hamm as your interview (gasps) guest on the U S soccer podcast. Um, she's not an easy interview to get. How was that for you? Oh my gosh. I'm smiling so big because it was so cool. She honestly made us laugh. She made us cry. She is so well-spoken. The, the way that she describes moments in her career, the way she described what, she's, what they've done with Angel City and what they're going to do is just so inspiring. Like, there's a lot of... I loved Mia Hamm growing up. Like, don't get me wrong, but like Julie Foudy was my girl. Like, I wanted to be Julie Foudy, Right. And Julie Julie had that, like, leadership that I feel like I related to the most. And so to hear Mia talk about being a leader and to talk about how she found her leadership within the Washington Freedom and within different teams and how that was different than everybody else's, I just loved how everybody doesn't have to be the same. You know, I think we look at these these people that are our idols in different sports and say, I want to be like them. And what she taught me in this interview is like, you need to be like you. 
and you need to foster, like cherish and grow everything that you are good at and uh, make that your strength and your foundation. And I loved that from her because she just had so many good things to say. It was a great interview. I, I told Charlie the next morning, like I texted him that night and I was like, I'm still buzzing. And I, the next morning I was like, I still can't believe it. Like she, she was great. She was really great. Fantastic. We are starting finally to see more women being hired as analysts covering men's soccer, including you, Lori Lindsay, Ali Wagner, Danielle Slayton, and Alex Scott, your former Boston teammate yeah. who's in England. Um, in fact, I think you know all those people really well. Um, do you get the sense that the business is changing in a good way here? Absolutely. I have always been a person who believes that no matter who you are, if you're the best person for the job, you're the best person for the job. And that's you as a person that shouldn't have to do with anything else. And I really do feel like there is a cool, there's a cool movement happening within soccer itself where it's, it doesn't matter if you, who you are, if you're a male, if you're a female, no matter what you identify with, that if you're good at your job, there's going to be opportunities for you. And it's not like they're going to be handed to you. They're not going to be handed to you, but you're going to be able to work towards a role somewhere. And I love that. I am so proud to be named with all those people. Also, Kendra D. St. Aubin, who's at Minnesota. Yes. Um, those women inspire me, but I look at the men and I'm inspired by the men too. Um, so it's really cool to me that I am looking at soccer as a, I think, one of the front runners and saying, like, if you know what you're talking about, you're willing to put the work in, um, there, we're going to give you a shot. And that, that's pretty cool. Please don't tell my friend Kendra that I forgot to mention her. I my won't, goodness, I she's very good up in Minnesota. She's um, so good, yeah. It, it's interesting because I've gotten to know Alex Scott a little bit. Um, and she just got named to the CBS Champions League crew she's been doing a lot of tv over in england uh covering men's and women's soccer the male dominated culture over in england has made made it tough at times for her like social mm -hmm. media abuse has been common unfortunately has it been okay for you so far in in this soccer culture over here for me yeah i you know i've gotten to the point where I've learned to take it all with a grain of salt. And I really haven't had to deal with what Alex has had to deal with at all. So I can't imagine what that, how I would react there. So I don't want to speak to that. But what I've experienced is if people have an opinion, you're probably doing something right. No matter what it is, if it's good or bad, and they have a strong opinion about it, like I feel like there's going to be people that aren't going to like me because... I have a different opinion than them, or I have a different way of seeing the game than them, but that's okay. Um, I'm willing to look at criticism in a constructive way to get better, but I'm not willing to let criticism change who I am as a human because I feel like I um, am in it for the right reasons and I am pursuing what I believe is to be right for me. So um, I don't know. I, I heard a good quote. I think it's Rachel Hollis and she says like other people's opinions are none of your business. And I think that it's one of the things that I pride myself on is like, I can understand that everyone's going to have an opinion, 
and I can use certain opinions who I trust in order to help me grow. But besides that, I'm going to let people talk and just try not to let it bring me down or bring me too up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to wrap up here, I, when you look at the years ahead, what do you want to do in this business in the coming years? My ultimate goal for a few years now has been, I want to be Rebecca Lowe-esque, right? I want to be this person who knows the game so well and can host a show uh, from the standpoint of, I played the game, I talked about the game for a long time, and now I get to hear from other experts and kind of lead the conversation. I think MLS will get there. I think MLS will have a show that is not like Premier League mornings, but is kind of in a way where you're um, reviewing a lot of games, but you're prepping for one game of the day or a couple games of the day. And I want to be that host. I want to be that person. And um, that's kind of where my trajectory, that's where my eyes are in the long run. Well, good luck in, in the pursuit of that and enjoying what you're doing right now. It's a lot of stuff. Jordan Angeli is hosting the MLS Assist podcast with Joe Lowry. You should check that out. She's co-hosting the U.S. Soccer podcast with Charlie Davies. She's also broadcasting the Columbus Crew games for local TV there. She does a little bit of everything. Jordan, thanks for coming on the show. Grant, always great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Jordan Angeli as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of our partner, The Total Soccer Show, for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.